like Shibuya roll call in here or you know what I mean? There's a lot of there's a lot of familiar, maybe even unfamiliar faces in here. Okay, we we won't actually do that, so don't worry. I know. I'm gonna stand over here with the young folks. This is where I'm, yeah. But good morning. How are you guys? Yeah. This is we you guys we've done it. It's 12 weeks of Luke. Two chapters a week. Who knew there were like 70 verse chapters? And you're like, what is this reading plan? What's happening here? There's a lot. And man, we have enough to probably chew on for years, right? But this has been a journey. And uh, it's not coming to an end. It continues, right? But we're looking at Luke chapters 23 and 24. That's what we read last week. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So today I'm going to bring us home. God's already brought us home. I'm gonna, we're going to look at the end of the Gospel of Luke together and, and a, a story in there that kind of just sticks out like a sore thumb. I believe has a lot of relevance for us. That's where we will sit this morning. In, in December, um, I'm sure you guys know next week is going to be the family service. And the middle schoolers are, and the earlier are going to be doing a pancake feed. Yeah? More details to come. That's going to be awesome. Um, but don't forget, service will be at 11 a.m. next week, okay? Just don't forget that. But then we'll be, talk, we'll be reflecting on Luke for the, for the next Sunday after that. So we're not done yet, is my point, okay? We're not done yet. So if you want to open up to, like, Luke 23 and just kind of hover there, because that's where we're going to be today. Our guiding theme, our guiding mantra throughout Luke has been how Jesus is restoring the world, right? And I think that's, uh, man, we're going to see that deeply today. You know, um, and I, I feel like I say this probably too much, but I'm a teacher, and people, um, there's this dynamic that happens with teachers, especially history teachers, it seems like. People will come up to me and and maybe it's been one of you, or maybe it's, it's been other people too, but they'll come up to me and just start talking about all this history stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And they're like, you didn't know that? And I'm like, no. And, and then the line comes, but you're a history teacher. And then I sometimes a little too sarcastically say, yeah, I'm not a history book. I'm a history <laughs> teacher. I'm not Google. You're right. I'm not Google. But... But there's this kind of that dynamic there, right? Um, I think it can be that way, too. People, even in the church, people are like, man, Ethan, do you want to you be a teacher in the kingdom? you want to be a teacher in the church? And I'm kind of like, yeah, but probably not in the way you're thinking, right? Because I think we often look at teachers like someone who, who knows it all. Yeah? And you sit there and take notes and consume the information, and the teacher delivers that information. And I'm like, yeah, I do want to be a teacher, not that kind of teacher. I want to help people learn how to learn. I want to help people facilitate. I want to put the right information in front of them at the right time and have them reach out for it, not me spoon feed it to them. That's education. That's learning. That's what I'm passionate about when people are like, I wasn't asking for all of that, Ethan. Just asking if you wanted to be a teacher. You know, but that's my response. Yeah, I do, but probably not in the way you're thinking. You know, I think kind of similarly, we see Jesus have this response 
when he's put on trial, after he's arrested and he's put on trial, they're like, you're the Messiah, right? And what does he say? He's like, if that's what you say. He's like, yes, I am. But the context there and kind of the passiveness there is like, yeah, but not quite in the way that you think. So I am the Messiah, but not the Messiah you're talking about, right? And I think we're going to see that, we do see that at play here. People have a particular view of what they're looking for in the Messiah. And Jesus is like, yeah, I am the Messiah, but not like that. Not like that. The problem we find through Luke is a rejection throughout Luke. We find people rejecting Jesus as he is. People rejecting the Messiah for who God has intended them to be. And instead, they favor false ideas of what a Messiah should be. So let's do this. We're going to contextualize where we're at right now. Um, Last week, I kind of stuck in 21. We didn't really get into the passion narrative where Jesus gets arrested and and goes to the cross and and is killed. But Jesus, going into Luke 22, Jesus had just told them what's going to happen to Jerusalem if they don't repent. If the nation of Israel does not turn to God and turn away from these systems and traditions that they've added on, the yokes that they've added on, if they don't repent from that, it's going to be over. So it's Passover time. And Passover is this big, big, big holiday. Imagine Christmas, but everybody went to one city to celebrate. If you were Jewish, you went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So the city is beyond bustling, right? There's a lot of people there. Pilate goes there. He's the Roman governor. He has to be there to keep the peace. He's not participating in Passover, but Passover historically is when stuff goes down, like revolutions and stuff like that, okay? Herod, too. Herod, too. Herod is, is, uh, he is Jewish, ethnically Jewish, and so he goes to Jerusalem as well, and he, he's there for the Passover. And, and in this time, Jesus is reminding them that he's going to suffer, that he's going to suffer. And we see this dialogue in 22 where Jesus is telling them he's going to suffer, and, they're, and they're, they have the Passover meal. And then right away, the disciples, how do they respond? They respond with their dreams of being second in command. Who's going to be the greatest among you, Jesus? It's like they can't shake this idea that Jesus has to be this warrior king, and he's going, he has to overthrow Rome. Like, even though he literally is just telling them, guys, I'm going to suffer. Guys, this is what's, this is what's going to happen. They're like, yeah, but can, who's going to be at your right hand? Like, who's going to be there? Who's going to be the greatest? It's like, you just don't get it. Right? This is, this is building. Hold on to these things, because this builds the picture that Luke is painting for us. Jesus is arrested. And what happens after he's arrested? Someone gets cut. Someone gets cut. And what's the first thing Jesus says? He says, stop it. I bet you the disciple that did that, he's like, it's on a crack, and he's, he's about to get arrested. The revolution is here. It has begun. Swords out. Huzzah. Whatever they said. I don't know what they say in that time. But, you know, and go for it. And then when Jesus says, stop, they're probably like shook. And then he's arrested. And then guess what? How do we know the disciples are shook and that their world is shattered? Because Jesus all of a sudden isn't this warrior Messiah that he's been telling them the whole time. But they, they figure it out. What do they do? They run away. That makes sense. Because we always read that. Like they ran away just because they're 
just so unfaithful, right? We just kind of oversimplify that maybe. But they ran away because, okay, he really isn't doing the things we wanted him to do. He really is different. Jesus is on trial. It's interesting how that happens. Judas has him arrested at night so that people don't see. Because if the people saw it, guess what they would want to do? Huzzah! Right? It's time to go. What do they do? They do it first thing in the morning. All the religious leaders get Jesus, and they make the accusations. Let's do it quick. Let's do it quick before people arrive here, people show up. Let's get this done in a hurry. And they accuse him. They accuse him of three things. Hold on to these because this is important. They accuse him of disturbing the Jewish peace. This guy is undermining our system. He went through the temple. It was kicking people out. Yeah? He's talking about our money. He's talking about our positions of power. He's talking about our status. This guy's disturbing our peace. Two, that he's fomenting rebellion. He's telling people, don't pay taxes to Caesar. That's what they accuse him of. Is that true? No, he actually said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So they're lying, but they're saying, hey, he's, he's suggesting you don't pay your taxes. And then three, that he's a political threat. He's claiming to be the king, right? He's a political threat to Rome. That's their accusation. That's their accusation. All right, you're still in Luke 23, right? Okay, let's go to the text here in verse 13. How was, was the context helpful? Okay, hopefully. Okay, 23, starting in verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priest rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and I've found no basis for, basis for the charges against him. Neither has Herod. For he sent him back to us, as you can see. He's done nothing to deserve death. And I'm telling you, if a Roman is saying that, if Pilate is saying that, who is notorious for killing Jewish people specifically, if he's saying this Jewish man, this Jewish rabbi is not deserving of death, uh, you better listen. <laughs> Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas. And Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Are you picking up on some irony here? Okay, we'll talk about that. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I've found in, I found in him no grounds for a death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. But, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. You know, Luke is revealing the heart of the religious elites in Jerusalem. And he's doing that by showing how they chose Barabbas over Jesus. They chose the one who fit into their way of life, their culture, their system. And they demanded 
death to the one who threatened all that. We too offer, are offered a similar choice very, very frequently. But God is restoring the world by the death of his son for those, those of us that we just least deserve it. So here's a question. If you're a question person, I'm a question person. If you're a question person, here's, here's the question. When it really comes down to it, why do God's people reject Jesus? When it really comes down to it. So I got one idea for you today. One idea. Keep it, keep it simple. Middle schools, I didn't give middle school a shout out. Middle school's joining us today. Good morning. I'm glad you guys are here. Oh, there's applause and everything. We see you guys. We're grateful that you're in here with us. Build a Jesus. Build a Jesus. I think there's something within us. There's something within us. We tend to prefer manufactured versions of Jesus and religion that fit into our culture and our systems. This leads us away from God and from the real Jesus. Who's been to Build-A-Bear? That's it? None of you guys? You don't have to, like, you want to close your eyes and then raise your hand? I didn't say who went to Build-A-Bear yesterday. Don't be embarrassed. Right? Right? I have a distinct memory. What's a Build-A-Bear? Okay. No, that's fine. That's fine. This is good. That's a good question. It's, it's a place where you go and you can create your own teddy bear. You pick what it looks like. You can put the, the stuffing into it. And you can customize it, right? It is so cool. I remember my first experience at a Build-A-Bear in Chicago, because there wasn't even one here. It was in Chicago, and I was probably too old. I was like 10. I was probably too old for that. But I really wanted one, because it's such a cool thing. Like, where else can you make your own stuffed animal? That's pretty cool. So many options. I didn't even build a bear. I built an elephant. Elephants are my favorite animals, right? I built an elephant. I was like, you can do that? That's a thing? And you can buy clothes for it, and they charge you like $29.99 for every piece of clothing, every sock they put on, right? Everything. But it was such an experience. I'm like, oh, this is great. I, I no longer have to get the, the, the teddy bear that's given to me. I get to make my own. But that's a cool thing, right? We like that. You guys already know where this is going, though, huh? <laughs> You're like, yeah, Ethan, okay, don't smack us in the face. But this is my bear or elephant. This is, I made it. I chose everything about it. It fits my desires, my suiting, my preferences, all these things, right? And it probably looks like nobody else's out of all the different options and things you can put on these stuffed animals. Probably no one else has one that looks just like mine. It's mine. You know, I think this is already hitting home maybe a little bit. Build a Jesus. I think we, we live in a, in a Christian culture, a national Christian culture that's all about my Jesus. My Jesus. Go listen to some of the top hits. Christian top hits, music. And just count how many times you hear my Jesus. My Jesus. What's your Jesus look like? What's he sound like? Act like? Is it, is, did you put your own flavor on Jesus? Does your Jesus have chacos? Does your Jesus, does your Jesus, uh, we're just talking in pre-service, did anybody have that, this like 1970s Jesus culture 
white Jesus, long brown hair, bright blue eyes walking on the water, stoic, more stoic than like, yeah, just, and he's just like walking. He doesn't look mean, but he's just walking. No, no, one, had a, no one had a picture of Jesus on their wall like that? Don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. Okay. I'm like, if you grow up in a white household in the Midwest, don't lie to me. My Jesus culture. You know, I think, I think there's something there. Hold on to that because we'll come back to that. We, we live in a culture that prioritizes uh, individuality above all else. It's individuality on another level. Individuality to a point where their technology knows what we want more than we do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just it's on another level. You get your own Build-A-Bear. You can have your own truth. You can have your own version of religion. You have your own Jesus. It's pretty convenient, right? It feels good, doesn't it? Let's be honest. It feels good, doesn't it? Or else more comfortable. That's the word right there. Let's dig back into here. Barabbas. Barabbas. We're going to see something at play here. Barabbas, who was this guy? I, if you watch, was it The Passion of the Christ, one of these movies, he looked like this crazy dude. Like, his eyes were going everywhere, and he's like missing teeth, and he's just like real dirty. He's like, he look more like Shrek than a person. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, the, the way he's been portrayed in film and media, he's like, oh yeah, this guy's a maniac. Like, they're choosing a maniac over Jesus. That's not who Barabbas was. Actually, a lot of our early manuscripts include his, his first name. Barabbas means son of the father, which we'll dive into that for a second. Means son of the father. That's not typically like your name. A lot of, a lot of what we found in early transcripts, early manuscripts rather, is Jesus. His name is Jesus Barabbas. Jesus is a super popular name. That's like being called Bob. There's lots of Jesuses in Jesus' time. Right? There was, it was. It was a super popular name. Joshua, if anyone's named Joshua in the time, that's the same as Jesus. We just translate it differently from the language. But Jesus is a popular name. God with us, right? That's what Jesus means, God with us. So you have an op so they're presented with this guy. This, is, this guy's name is Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, son of the Father. And, and he is the warrior Messiah that the people wanted. Because he was arrested for actually causing an insurrection. And if you look at the other gospel accounts, I believe Matthew um, and Mark get a little bit more specific. They're like, he had, as you know, he caused this recent revolt. Like, the people that had read the Bible understood, like, oh, yeah, that was the guy who caused another revolt who was trying to overthrow Rome. He is that, he's that type. Are you with me? Yeah. He's the one who wanted to start an insurrection. He's the kind of guy they were looking for, in a sense. He'd actually done the things that Jesus was accused of doing. Right? Yeah. Son of the Father. You know, there's, there's an interesting wordplay happening here because son of the Father can mean a lot of things. It could mean son of your father. It could be son of a teacher. I think the idea Luke is getting at here and what the Gospels are getting at is they had a choice to make. Barabbas is kind of the son of his generation. He's a representative of his father, of his culture, of the people, of what they wanted, the kind of Messiah figure they were looking for. 
That's what he's embodying here. And you have Jesus Messiah. Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the promised one from scripture, from the prophets. And he is not what they were looking for. And they're presented with the option three times. Three times. Let that sink in, right? They had a choice between Barabbas and Jesus. When it came down to it, when it came down to it, the religious elite chose the one that was safer for them, someone they knew how to handle and deal with, someone that supported their worldview, let's get Rome out of here, someone who didn't threaten their system, their setup, someone who lived out their culture instead of questioning it. Jesus was rejected because he was dangerous to them. Are, is this, are you hearing this? Had they accepted Jesus, the whole, the whole religious system in Jerusalem would have had to make some crazy changes. It would have flipped things upside down. It would have brought an end to their rule, those specific people that were there who were kind of, uh, had the privilege of those systems. They would have to give that up. They'd have to change that. And historically speaking, human beings, do human beings do that well, giving up their position of power, their privilege? Yeah, we know how that story goes. When it's all on the table, which Jesus do you choose? Like even in the church, we can, uh, we know, hopefully we're aware by now, we have a tendency ourselves to build traditions. We have a tendency ourselves to build expectations and project expectations based on our own ambition, based on our preferences, based on what they're doing. So we should do that too. But not on the culture of Jesus. How can this be? How can this be? How can this still be? How can this still happen? Does this still happen? How can this still happen? You know, Luke 24 says something that's kind of interesting here. You flip there. Maybe not even have to turn a page here. But this is after Jesus is, uh, is resurrected, and he comes back to his disciples. In verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And you're like, it's like the Matrix. Like, open your mind. It's really not that complicated or, like, crazy sci-fi. All that means is what was once closed is now opened. Their minds have been closed. And Jesus opened them. You have to ask the question, why were their minds closed? Because they didn't have a choice and Jesus wanted to keep their minds closed? No. Why were their minds closed? They couldn't believe the Holy Scripture because they had their minds closed. I'm being careful not to say closed-minded because I think we have our own definitions of that that may not be helpful right? But they had kept their minds closed. Where in your life is Jesus a threat to? Where in your life is the real Jesus a threat to? We've got to be asking ourselves this question. We've got, we have to. We have to. Your ambition, your ambition, what you want out of your life, that says it all what you want out of your life. Ambition. I gotta, we got a word for that that might help you to heal, to might help you to realign to focus. You know what the word is? Allegiance. 
allegiance to Jesus. There's a lot of people who think the word faith could also be translated as allegiance. Allegiance to Jesus. Your culture is Jesus. Is the real Jesus a threat to your culture? What does that mean? That's a big thing, right? Another plug for Monday night. What does that mean? Your culture. Is it possible that there are things that we grow up being taught and being told and just experiencing and assuming that can have negative consequences? That can keep us from seeing God or keep other people from seeing God? There's a word that might help you with that. It's called grace. Having grace with yourself, but having grace with other people from other cultures. Is Jesus a threat to your view of God? I got a word for you, and it's actually the last thing that Jesus says on the cross is all about trust. To your hands I commit my spirit. Trust in God. Trust in God. Is Jesus a threat to your view of the church? The expectations we have for one another. For everybody. Got a word for that. The Bible has a word for that. It's called family. Is Jesus a threat to your view of other people? The word is sacrifice. This is a short message. Simple points. We can't hold on to build a Jesus. You got the build a Jesus on your shelf. Get rid of it. Do the hard work of figuring out how, why did you do that? What about that build a Jesus in your life did you like? Were you holding on to? You've got to do that hard work. You don't have to do it alone, but you've got to do that hard work. The question I hope you guys leave here asking is a hard question. There's been a lot of hard questions over these past 12 weeks, but that's what we're dealing with here. Right. We're not dealing with a kumbaya Jesus. We're dealing with a Jesus. We would like that, yeah? I want a Jesus who's like, hey, then we want to go grab some coffee and just talk about life. I'm like, yeah. He's like, do you want to go hiking in the woods? I'm like, yeah, Jesus, I would love that. Do I want a Jesus that is reminding me all day, every day, about the deep parts of my heart that are in opposition to God. I don't like that. The question we've got to ask ourselves is, do you prefer build a Jesus or Jesus Messiah? And why? I think once we can grapple with this question, the cool thing about the, the, the word, the name Israel is, is he who wrestles with God. That's what Israel means, right? He who wrestles with God, right? That's kind of our role now. Jesus became the new Israel, and we are his followers. Wrestling with God is incredibly significant. Wrestling with this question is incredibly significant. And I say that to say that if we, as followers of Jesus, are not wrestling with these hard questions, imagine the impact that has on the people around us. Imagine how we portray God. Imagine how we end up portraying Jesus to other people. I believe that once we really start to wrestle with this question, 
that we can make space for God to do some amazing things within us and through us. So the bottom line here, the deepest parts of us are so locked up and opposed to just anything foreign, right? We got a lot of words for that. We got a lot of names and labels for that, right? Call it what you want, comfort, tribalism, whatever. There's a lot there. The culture that Jesus is offering you and I today and offering the world is so foreign. It's different. Being a disciple doesn't mean that one time, a long time ago, you made the decision to bring Jesus into your heart and he's just going to do it all. It doesn't work like that, right? It means you've made a commitment to a lifetime of hard, emotional, and spiritual work of building awareness of your own heart and the lives of people around you and learning what it means to truly sacrifice on the deepest, deepest of levels. Or like Jesus said in Luke 9, to carry your cross daily. We choose that. We have that decision before us daily, what king we're going to follow. Your build a Jesus or the real Jesus? There's a cool question here. After this beat down, right? We're just, we're just, uh, that's not what this is. Because Jesus has an answer for us with where we're all at right now. I, for everybody in this room, young, old, wherever you're new, old, or whatever, said old too much. But Jesus has a response for you in this. What, what is the result of that rejection? What is the result of that rejection? The Bible talks about that. Follow along. Let's go to Romans 5. What's the result of that rejection we give to Jesus? When, when, we, when we do that, when we do that, because we will, we'll reject him. We'll choose our preferences over him. We'll follow the ways of this world over him. Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perver- uh, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. You see, at just the right time, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we were still sinning, when we were still choosing build a Jesus, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to take communion together here in a moment. On the cross... If you go back to Luke, and you can read this. On the cross, Jesus' last moments, on the cross, he looks to those same people who are falsely accusing him. 
He looks to those same people that put him there. And he loved them. I can't comprehend that. I don't know about you. That is love I cannot comprehend. But I want to. He begged God for their forgiveness. So how does Jesus respond to our rejection? That's the cool thing here. That's the cool thing about Jesus. He responds with grace, love, and forgiveness. And it's new every day. You can reject him in this moment. And he's already taken the weight of that rejection. He's already taken the weight of sin. He's already taken the weight. He's already taken the punishment. So in the next moment, you can go to him. You can accept him. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to take communion, and we're going to keep on worshiping together. All right? Let's go to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and we're grateful that you are our God and that we are not. (laughs) Father, we're so undeserving of your love. We're so undeserving of the grace that you offer us every day. And Father, we come before you and we pray and we ask for you to help us see the real Jesus in our lives, to help us do the hard work of suffering and suffering well and carrying our cross. Help us to become like your son. And Father, we know that you promise joy. We know that you promise a a, a character. We know that you promise an endurance beyond ourselves when we trust in you, Father. We love you and we thank you for your son. And it's in his holy name we pray. Amen.